the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 42 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast and I really hope that each conversation inspires you to think, feel and act in new ways. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with child, adolescent and family psychiatrist Dr. Chris Weaver. Dr. Weaver has 30 years of clinical experience and offers specialist psychiatric treatment for children, adolescents and their families. Dr. Weaver was appointed the Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Health Scientists at Bond University in 2005 and is currently a Senior Lecturer at the Griffith University. Dr. Weaver is the author of several children's books including The Secret Problem, a book for children with obsessive compulsive disorder, The School Wobblies, a book for children who do not want to go to school due to anxiety, Full of Beans, a book for children with ADHD, and How to Bust the Worry Warts, a book for children with generalised anxiety. In this conversation, we discuss the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, reasons why children and families seek support of a psychiatrist, how important it is to remain curious when working with young people, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chris Weaver. Chris, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. It's my pleasure, Meg. This conversation is going to open our hearts and minds to the world of child and adolescent psychiatry. So can you tell us, how did you get to what you're doing now? What's your story? Well, it's, it's never direct, is it? You know, I started off doing medicine after I left school a long time ago. And in those days, it was a five-year course after, after school. So I was pretty young when I graduated as a doctor, nearly uh, 21, 22. And then, then you end up doing that sort of intern year and residency year, figuring out what, what sort of career you're going to have. And I think like a lot of things, you're guided by the people you meet. I met an excellent psychiatrist who was very interesting when I was doing a, a clinical hypnosis course because I thought I'd be a general practitioner and I thought that would be a useful skill. And I thought, oh, this world of psychiatry, that looks interesting. So after my second year of sort of internship and residency, I became a psychiatry trainee at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. And I did my adult training, which was in those days five years. And again, it's the people you meet. I met some excellent child and adolescent psychiatrists who really inspired me to, to be interested in working with kids. And then you, I did an extra two years of training in, in, with children. And then there you have it. I'm a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. But I have to say that in the last 30 years, the, the, the landscape's changed a lot. What I learned in those sort of years of training really didn't prepare me for my job. And it's really a lot of extra learning and training and reading over the years, I think, has, has really trained me to be a good child psychiatrist now. I think when I finished, there was a very much a psychodynamic approach, play therapy. Nowadays, it's shifted much more to 
you know, an eclectic therapy, including cognitive behavioural treatments, medication, and the more traditional sort of longer-term psychotherapy. So it was a, it's always been a journey. I think you keep on learning as you, as new things come up, you keep on learning. And I, I certainly think my journey's not finished yet. There's always new things that are coming up. And as a child psychiatrist, I, I trained in lots of really good places in Sydney and I worked in public service for about 15 years in an inpatient unit at, at Sydney, which was a great job. And then I eventually went into private practice and I've been in private practice since about 2005. Chris, what strikes me about your story and knowing your work is just this curiosity to continually learn, to dive into different topics, your range of books to help young people understand what they're experiencing. And I think that is such a gift to have such a curiosity and passion in your career over a long period of time. I say that there's four things that you need in life and one of them is to be kind the second one is to try and be calm. The third one is actually curiosity, curious about the world and learn and have that sort of interest, and not to take everything for granted. And the last thing is to be courageous, you know, to be able to be brave enough to do the things that you want to do. And I think that curiosity is really important to sort of create in children, you know, get them to, to be curious about the world, to learn about themselves, about others, about the, how the world works, and constantly... I want to learn more. And I think it's a lifelong journey. It's not something that you stop after school. I think you just keep on learning and because things change, things change and uh, you have to keep up. Yes. That's one of my greatest joys doing this podcast is I get to have incredible conversations with the most fascinating people who are constantly curious about the world. So can you tell us what is a child and adolescent psychologist? Well, you put it there. Because I'm actually a psychiatrist, and that's oh. really, that is really, I think that highlights what people sort of their confusion. And I'm glad you made that sort of slip, because that's that what's that's what happens all the time. People say, you know, what is a child and adolescent psychologist? And I say, well, I'm not sure. I'm not the expert there because I'm actually a psychiatrist. And then they look at me quizzically and say, what's the difference? And the the short answer is I can prescribe medication. The long answer is that I'm a medical doctor who's done a medical degree and then gone on to do psychiatry and then child psychiatry. And the difference with the psychologists is they've gone to uni and done a different degree, which is sometimes science or arts-based and then psychology and then usually honours and then a master's. So they've got a very long training as well. But the difference, though, our jobs overlap. One of the things that I do differently is that I can prescribe if necessary. And probably I see the, the pointier end, uh, the more severely sort of affected children. So that's probably in a nutshell the difference between what I do and what a child psychologist does. We often work together in parallel and though... I set off wanting to do lots of therapy nowadays because there's so few of us. I end up often doing a lot of the diagnosis and thinking of ways of managing children and looking after the medication. And a lot of the therapy is often done by the child psychologists or other therapists. So the difference is medical degree versus other degree. And the fact that I probably see more severely affected children 
and often referred with the question of whether some medication may be helpful in some of those children. Oh, I'm glad that I had that slip now. That's really fascinating to know the difference. And I'm curious to know, what is it that brings young people to your office? What are the common themes? Well, it's a variety of things, and and sometimes it's a combination of different problems as well. We'd like to sort of be neat and say, oh, this is depression, this is anxiety, this is OCD, this is ADHD, this is autism. All of those things come to my office, and sometimes a child will have more than one particular problem, like depression and anxiety commonly go together. Kids with ADHD often have reading and learning problems. Kids with autism will often have anxiety and ADHD as well as their autism. So it's a variety of different problems. I have to say that probably the thing that has become more common in our offices is children presenting with autism, the milder forms of autism. Uh, autism spectrum disorder that is becoming more common in child psychiatrist offices because they're being recognized more and i think anxiety and depression is also seems to be increasing and whether that's covid related or related to a whole lot of other sort of community issues it's uncertain but all i know is that child psychiatrists seem to be busier and busier and that's reflected by the, the fact that often we have like up to a 12-month waiting list for new patients and a lot of child psychiatrists have closed their books because they're just overwhelmed with referrals. And one of the things, you know, about teaching medical students and talking on podcasts is to try and, and get an enthusiasm for medical students to think about child psychiatry as a career because it's a very satisfying career with lots of job opportunities and we need lots more of them. It sounds like such a puzzle in a way that when a young person comes to you, it would take time to really understand their capacity and what they can do and what's possible for them and to take the time to unpick it all. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a complex sort of field because, you know, very rarely will a child self-refer to you. They always come because someone suggests that they need to come and see you, whether it's the school, the parent, the GP, pediatrician. Someone is saying this kid probably needs a little bit of help. And it is difficult because, you know, you have a complex system of a child within a family, within a school, within a community, and all those sort of layers of interaction which you sort of have to step back and look at all the salient issues there. And sometimes a behaviour can look like something, but in fact, when you actually look at all the layers, there's something else underneath causing the behaviour to be that sort of behaviour. For example, a child who's really anxious or has a past history of trauma can look like they've got ADHD to the untrained eye because they're vigilant, hyperactive, on the go, but that's because of their anxiety. They're not able to focus and they're restless because of their anxiety. And you need to have that skill to be able to dissect those different sort of reasons for behaviour, which is sometimes quite difficult. We get it wrong sometimes as well. So, yes, unpicking what's going on with a child is often a difficult process, but it just requires you to to be you know, methodical and to get a good history and not take things at face value. Look and be curious, you know, what could be going on here? 
So when someone comes into your office, are there key things that you're looking for through your skilled lens? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the interview often starts even before the, the child comes to my office, you know, how they are in the waiting room, how they interact with, you know, the staff at the front desk, how the family sort of where they're sitting in the waiting room, all those things give you a clue. You know, sometimes children with autism, you can recognize them in the waiting room because of the way they're dressed and the way they behave, because it's sort of, they're a bit stunted and awkward and they're wearing Crocs, you know, (laughs) there's certain things that you sort of pick up after a lot of experience. But the thing I suppose is, is, you know, not to, to rush into sort of conclusions or diagnosis quickly. Look at all the possibilities and be able to revise your thinking. If new evidence comes up and you say, no, I was wrong there, that, that child doesn't have this, they've got something else, be open to be able to revise your diagnosis. And we all do that. Um, sometimes a child will look like they've got ADHD and you treat them for that. And then you realise that the medicines that you've used for that haven't helped and actually it's probably anxiety related to some trauma so it's a process of just being able to to be open to change your mind and to be able to take the information as it comes in the door and sometimes very vital family information or informations of of some sort of bullying or trauma doesn't come out the first time you see a child It, it takes a few sessions for a child to be comfortable to talk about some of the things that are happening, which can be quite important in terms of the way they're reacting to the world. You know, we all know bullying is a big issue. We all know that sort of trauma in a child's earlier life is a big issue, but they don't say those things straight away. Sometimes they need to get to trust you before they do that. And I can see how your gift of curiosity really helps you in your role because every time a young person's coming in, you're looking for that new information. It sounds like being a little bit of a detective. It is. It is. It's like detective thinking. You say, what's the evidence for this? Okay. And you track down the clues, you know, the things that that the the child will present with the history that child has, what the school says about the kid and what the parents will say about a child. And you just put all that information together and come up with the best possible explanation, but always be open to revising that in the future if the information changes. So for a parent or teacher listening, what are some things that we can look at for in our young people to know if it's worth going to see a psychiatrist or to, you know, because what I'm thinking is there are many times me as a teacher or as a parent, you think, oh, it's just a phase. It's just something they're going through. And that may be true. That may be accurate. However, there may be times where that's not. How do we know the difference? I think there's two words, distress and disability. They're the two things that you look at, how distressed a child is and what sort of a disability is occurring as a result of whatever is happening to that child. You know, for example, if a child is starting to fail at school because they're too anxious or they're too depressed or they can't focus and they're falling further and further behind, that needs to be investigated. If a child becomes more and more withdrawn and is playing less with their peers, spending more time in their bedroom and not interacting socially or with their family, that needs to be sort of investigated. So it's the, the how distressed the child is and also the disability that is occurring with it. And also the longevity of symptoms. You know, if a child has a distressing event happen, they're going to be upset for a while, but they usually bounce back. 
But if a child doesn't bounce back and uses avoidance behaviours or withdrawal or starts to become more oppositional when previously they weren't, then you say this is probably a flag that they need to have some intervention. And whether it's a child psychiatrist or a psychologist initially, it's really that's that's debatable. But nowadays it's 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 whoever you can get into. Because everyone's got a huge waiting list. Usually a good child psychologist and they think a child psychiatrist needs to be on board, then they'll often say that fairly quickly. That's a really good frame of reference for us to think about how much distress it's causing the yeah. young person. And I'm also guessing here how much distress it's causing the school and the family. Yeah. Does that come into play? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if schools are struggling, we need to understand why the child is causing that problem. I think one of the big things is is to look at capacity in a child. Often a child is not functioning well because of a capacity problem, not because they're naughty. And I think that change in framework is really important for parents and also for teachers and other people. I think gone are the days where, you know, people say, you know, they need just need a, a good kick up the bum, you know, and no, that'll give you a sore foot and the and the kid will be distressed. You have to look at why. Why is this happening? And and it's surprising that if you look at through a different framework, all of a sudden a whole lot of other strategies can be implemented that you haven't thought of before. You know, and just simple things. Sometimes, you know, a kid will have a reading problem and start goofing off in class because they're embarrassed they can't do the work and teachers will think that they're naughty in fact they've got a capacity problem um, they can't concentrate that's a capacity problem not necessarily a naughtiness problem so i think it's sort of looking at and, and as you said with curiosity say why is this happening not so much okay the kids you know a naughty kid or oppositional defiant disorder it's there's usually a reason and taking time to think about that reason and maybe for us to move beyond our stories of they're naughty or they're bad or they're just trying to make my life hard, whatever this story is, or they're just playing the victim and move beyond that with that lens of curiosity. Absolutely. Like, for example, you know, all, a lot of children have got mild autistic spectrum disorder and they're never picked up. But when you look at it, they will often have a lot of distress from sensory overload. So they'll play up in school assemblies or sport or music where it's, it's really loud and disruptive. If you look through a lens of could this kid have autism, you go, okay, this, this is the reason. Maybe they shouldn't go to assembly. Maybe they should do other things. Uh, rather than music and, and sport because they're too, you know, disorganised and loud and they don't do well in those classes. You know, you start to come up with different strategies, which often means that the school is happier because they've dealt with a disruptive kid by changing management and that kid is happier because they're not always upset and getting into trouble. So it's sort of looking at those sorts of things can make a huge difference and makes everyone's job easier. And it sounds almost liberating to move from the problem child to the child has problematic behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I think nearly all cases that it's a, a behavioural issue, which was with the right management, you get a better outcome. One of the problems is that if you don't get in early, sometimes a whole lot of secondary problems then built on the primary one. And if a child can't focus or they can't do the work and they become more disruptive, 
then they get labelled as being that disruptive oppositional gear. They get punished, and then they they internalise that label, and that becomes part of their identity. And you don't want that to happen. You want to get in early to try and and, and give a child strategies so they become successful, and so they don't get labelled by teachers and other students as you know being that difficult child. And that takes some patience, doesn't it, for us to really think about this in a holistic approach. And you mentioned before medications, and I'm really curious about that as well. And there's that curious word again. It's just a theme for today is that there are times when I'm just out in public, you'll hear someone say something. It's just an off the hand comment like, oh, there's so much more ADHD around or everyone's on medication and things are just really unhelpful. Can you bust some myths and tell us some realities around medication and how it can work for young people? Absolutely. You know, and I think the, the there's nothing that polarizes the community about children as much as medication. You know, if, if a parent comes into my office and you start talking about, you know, what the problem is and then you start talking about where the medication might be, something that they would consider, a lot of parents will say no straight up, okay? Some say yes straight up because they're desperate. But also if you talk about these things at dinner parties or social gatherings, people have very strong views, often with not a lot of knowledge. Things like, oh, I won't give my kid kitty speed, meaning they won't give their kid some Ritalin or dexamphetamine for ADHD, really is often said as a, an emotional response rather than a well-researched one. And I will often explain like Ritalin and Dexam probably right up there in terms of people feeling very strongly about these medicines. But Ritalin or methylphenidate uh, is as old as I am. It's, it's, it was around 64 years ago. It was a very effective medication for kids who have ADHD in terms of helping them focus, concentrate, learn, and in terms of the medicines that we use, it's probably the best in terms of safety efficacy profile. You do have some side effects from Ritalin and dexamphetamine, but they're fairly predictable and the, it works straight away. And if it works, you see it work within the first week. And it's just a matter of titrating the dose. So, you know, there's a lot of anti sort of stimulant feeling in the community, but often that's not based on evidence it's based on just you know drugs are bad for kids and that's a myth that i think we need to to sort of put to bed because the stimulants clearly are very very effective and in the right kids who've got fair income adhd very useful resource doesn't mean that's all you do you know it's it, it helps but then you need to do all the other behavioural stuff, routine, regularity, look at learning issues, chunk up the learning in the classroom so they don't have to concentrate for too long, quieter environments, have routines at home, all those sorts of things parents and teachers need to concentrate on as well. But often the medicine will let those things start to happen. Well, sometimes with that medication, you just can't get to first base. Have you had some families come to you after going through this process and trialing medication for the first time and saying, wow, this has transformed our family? About 99%. Really, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting. 
you know, they'll have that resistance and they'll come back and they'll say, well, this has made an enormous difference. I wish we'd come to you two or three years earlier because they've often done the, all the other therapies and sometimes a few of the alternative therapies, which have sometimes been helpful to a small degree, but most of the time it hasn't helped a great deal. And then finally they sort of last ditch effort, come and see a child psychiatrist, think about medication and their view changes very quickly. If their, child, if their child responds well to the ADHD medication. And I say that's most of the time, you know, stimulants are very effective medications and work most of the time. And what an incredible experience for that family to go through, to maybe go through such distress and maybe disability at times through to, I'm not sure there's resistance to trusting the process, trusting you and thinking, wow, I didn't know what was possible for my young person and his family. And then to see your young person go off to school and being able to sit and read for the first time, like my, I feel like crying just thinking about it. Well, there's a lot of kids, they'll, they'll think that they're dumb because they're just not doing very well at school. And then a few weeks on a stimulant and then all of a sudden, you know, the objective data is there. They start to go from D's to B's and sometimes A's. And all of a sudden, parents look at my kid's actually quite smart. And the kids are so young, but actually quite smart. And, you know, that shift is amazing in terms of, you know, a sense of self-esteem. You know, you, you consider yourself dumb and naughty. And then with treatment, it can really go the 180 degrees and you, you actually start performing much better get into less trouble and your marks come up. That just as a teacher and a parent think this is what it's all about, mm. being able to gauge our young people's capacity. What are they capable of? And I think there are so many times where we're frustrated, we're upset, we're just at our wits end because we're expecting something that they are just not capable of. Yeah. I liken it to like, you know, a kid who's three foot tall and you're asking them to be able to slam dunk, they just can't do it. It's physically impossible, you know, and, but you don't see it because what, what you sort of looking at is something that's invisible, the capacity to focus and concentrate, you know, and if you've got that sort of short kid and you say, I want you to, you know, jump up and dunk this basketball, everyone will say that's impossible. But you, if you've got a kid with severe ADHD and you ask them to be able to sit still for 20 minutes and read this essay and then answer 10 questions, that's a similar sort of ask. It's just not as obvious. And it's not fair. And then that'll feed into that story of I'm dumb. I, can't, I won't be bothered. I'll go to the toilet anyway or hang out with my mates in the corridor. That's much easier than trying to do something that I'm just not capable of. That's right. Yeah, oh, there's a saying that I use with kids lots of the time, avoidance is not a good strategy. You know, you've got you to gotta do the stuff that is hard, but you need the right help to be able to do it. Yes, having the right help to be able to do it. Do you notice this cycle of avoidance quite often in the people that you work with? Absolutely. Even the people that I don't work with who are my friends and family, <laughs> you know, people have got a tendency to put things off which are hard. And you always say, well, unless you do them, it'll remain hard and get harder. You know, the more you use avoidance as a strategy, the harder the task gets because all these other problems build up because you haven't done what you're supposed to have done. So as carers, what can we do to build our toolkit to be able to notice and gauge capacity? I think you have to be observant and 
you know, question why kids can't do certain things and always say, is it a capacity problem or is it, you know, a choice that the child is making? It's often hard sometimes to differentiate the two, but more often than not, it's a capacity problem. You know, kids with ADHD can't focus, therefore they often just don't get things done, don't follow instructions, and you just have to understand that sometimes you have to make allowances for that and support their their environment to make things easier, like, you know, have a very clear routine in lots of different things and checklists and all that sort of stuff. You know, kids with severe anxiety will avoid stuff because they're anxious and they often won't tell people that they're anxious. They will just refuse to do stuff. And it's not until a lot later that you realise this kid just can't do it because they've got overwhelming anxiety or even panics when they try and do something which is hard. Kids who are depressed sometimes just can't do it because they haven't got the physical energy or motivation to be able to do the stuff that they previously were able to do. So, you know, you have to have a look and say, what's going on here and how can we sort of change things in the child and in the environment to facilitate them being able to be more functional and being able to do the things that we ask them to do. As a general guide, what are some things that we can do as carers to be mindful of in the environment? I think set realistic expectations. <laughs> One, you know, a child of three can't do what a child of six or a child of ten can do. So you have to be realistic. Also be aware that, that, that kids are different. Their temperaments are very different. Just because one child in a family can do these things, another child may not be able to do them. You know, and one of the worst things to say is, you know, your brother could do this. Why can't you? Well, I'm just different. Right? That's why. But sometimes it's sort of that comparing is not very useful because each child needs a slightly varying approach to, to get the best out of them. But, you know, this, to, to see where they struggle and, you know, you, if they are struggling, ask them what's happening. And sometimes they'll need a little bit of help in being able to verbalise what's actually going on. So, you know, you get them to be able to express what, what what is happening and to be able to put that into words and then come up with some sort of solution after, you know, they're able to tell you in some way what they're having difficulty with. And sometimes it's a secret, you know, like a lot of children with obsessive compulsive disorder have got terrible thoughts, you know, they're so embarrassed about their thoughts in their head because they're, they're never nice thoughts that they won't tell anyone because they tell someone they'll be terribly embarrassed, you know, a thought that they might hurt someone or be a bad person or, you know, some have some, you know, really weird sort of sexual thought in their head. You know, they, 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 they think that if they tell people these things that people will judge them badly. So it's sort of giving them a safe place to talk about a lot of the stuff that's going on rather than in sort of any judgmental way, sort of judging a child and giving them the opportunity to talk about what, what's, what's hard and how are we going to make that easier for you. And that would be a skill in the parent or the teacher to be able to be with that information, Absolutely. regulate themselves and yeah, just be there and support them. Yeah. So no, not to be shocked or judgmental, you know, if a child is anxious, you know, not, not to tell them, you know, just to toughen up, 
doesn't happen like that. It's a it's a it's a process of gradually building up resilience to manage anxiety better. It really is a process, all of this, to really understand what's going on. Work with a team. It sounds like working with a team, if you've got your GP, a pediatrician, psychiatrist, psychologist, whoever you can get into at the moment, because I know wait lists are um, through the roof. <laughs> yeah, I think the most most teams that I work with usually are school parents, some psychologist and myself that's usually the, the the team sometimes pediatricians if there's some other physical problems but the overlap is a big overlap between what a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist does in fact and they do a lot of child psychiatry work in fact the, the numbers of pediatricians are much higher than child psychiatrists and they they probably see a lot more actual child psychiatry problems in numbers um, than we do we probably see the the harder ones, kids with complicated requirements in terms of medications and things. But paediatricians would see lots of children with ADHD, autism, anxiety, as well as child psychiatrists. Chris, you have given us so much to think and think about. And for me, the visual that's coming to my mind is you've almost given us a new lens to look at young people, to really look at them. I think that's a, that's a good metaphor. I think, you know, change your glasses and look through a different lens to see if there's a different sort of way of looking at a kid and coming up with a solution, which is better for that child. Because if something's not working, you need to change it. And generally, if it's not working for them, it's not working for the people around them and it's this vicious cycle. So let's start to work with what we've got, look at capacity, get curious, come up with a plan, try things, tweak things, revisit things. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Chris, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. <laughs> I am inspired by? Kind of. People are sort of kind to each other. I think that's, uh, that's a major sort of a way of understanding the other person and being kind to them. And, and that, that in itself brings people closer together, working together. When life feels hard? I think you have to go back to the basics. You know, don't come up with complicated solutions. You know, if life is hard for me, I say, okay, go back to the basics. And what I tell kids all the time is this handful of advice that I give you. You need a good sleep pattern where you sleep regularly. You need to eat healthy. You need to do some exercise. You need to have some fun with your friends at least once a week and don't get into bad habits to deal with stress, you know, drugs, alcohol, that sort of stuff. And I think if life is hard for people, they should go back to the basics, those very five basic things. And whenever life is hard for me, I try and go back to those sort of five basic things to look after yourself. An underrated skill is? Listening. People all often talk and they won't listen. And I think that's really important to listen to people because sometimes you'll listen and you'll put your thoughts your lens to what they're saying where you have to step back and and see the world through their eyes and listen to what they're saying and i am looking forward to new adventures every day you know work love and play every day that's uh i think you know you can plan for holidays and you can plan for far off events but i think you just have to be in the moment every day and i think that's the way that you uh that's what you look forward to Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. It has been such a joy and I've learned so much from this conversation. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, mate, and hopefully that's going to help lots of parents and kids out there. 
hope this conversation has inspired you to really get to know the strengths and challenges of the young people you live and work with. To learn more about Dr. Weaver's incredible work in the world, visit delphusbooks.com. There you will find a range of children's cartoon books that have been written to support young people's mental health. And I really think that these books would be a wonderful addition to every classroom in Australia and beyond. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you love the show, I invite you to write a short review on iTunes or Spotify. It will only take a few minutes and it really helps to share the podcast with more listeners. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or make an inquiry about my game-changing wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 42. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.